This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A new law site lawsuit filed by a Democratic-aligned law firm seeks to change the rules around absentee voting in Wisconsin. The lawsuit alleges that restrictions on witnesses, ballot boxes, and vote timing all violate the state's constitution, according to the Capital Times. The lawsuit also claims that Wisconsin lawmakers have been treating absentee voting like a privilege, but it should instead be considered a right, like all other forms of voting. The lawsuit seeks to overturn several determinations that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has made over the past years when it was dominated by conservative judges. The timing of the lawsuit is likely strategic to take advantage of the new liberal majority on the court that will begin in August. A new proposal from a Wisconsin Assembly member would change the order of speakers during public hearings in the Assembly, according to the Wisconsin Examiner. Currently, the order of speakers is determined by the committee chair, who can let government officials or registered lobbyists speak first, while members of the public have to wait. The new resolution would change the Assembly rules to prioritize members of the public and local government officials, who often have traveled long distances to speak here in Madison. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has issued an unhealthy air quality alert for Dane County, which is expected to remain in effect for at least through noon on Tuesday. The air quality advisory once again comes from smoke from wildfires in Canada. The air quality is currently unhealthy for all individuals, but especially for people with lung disease, older adults, and children. Dane County is also expected to have high temperatures over the next few days, with the heat index likely to be near 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The head of the statue of Hans Christian Haig has been recovered by the Wisconsin Department of Administration, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The statue stands on Capitol Square near King Street and was damaged during protests in the summer of 2020. Part of that damage was the removal of the statue's head. The statue was rededicated last year with a new head that replaced the lost one, but now that the lost one has been recovered, but now the lost one has been recovered and is currently contained within the state archive. The Hans Christian Haig Society is asking the state government to find a place to display the head, but so far there is no plan to do so. The city of Madison has scheduled a public meeting for next Monday to discuss the fate of the Annie C. Stewart Memorial Fountain, located in Vilas Park. The fountain, which is Madison's oldest piece of public art, was built in 1925 and has suffered extensive vandalism and erosion, and now is in need of significant repair. The meeting will discuss several preservation options, ranging in cost from $150 to $400,000. The public meeting will address next steps now that the city has cost estimates. Public comment and feedback is welcome. You can register to attend the virtual meeting on the calendar page of the City of Madison's website. And now, on to today's top stories. Last month, Madison's Metro Transit went through a major overhaul that, among other things, removed buses from the bottom of State Street. With the change now officially in effect, city officials say that now is the perfect time to test out a concept that has been discussed for decades, turning parts of State Street into a pedestrian mall. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. After being discussed both formally and informally for decades, the City of Madison will officially begin discussing a pilot program to turn parts of State Street into a pedestrian mall. A resolution will be introduced to the Common Council tomorrow night to take the necessary steps to bring an experimental closure of the 400 to 600 blocks of State Street. 
Under the proposal, parts of State Street would be closed off to all non-emergency vehicles starting next year. The closure would not be permanent and would not result in any physical changes to the roadway. The affected areas begin at West Gorm Street and run all the way up to the UW campus, containing Badger Liquor, Art Gecko, and State Street Brats. The resolution was brought forward by Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway alongside Alders Juliana Bennett of District 2 and MGR Govinderarjan of District 8, both downtown Alders. The resolution would give all of the relevant city agencies, namely the city's traffic engineering and planning divisions, the authority to not only study the feasibility of a pedestrian mall, but to actually implement the plan. Alder Bennett says that a pedestrian mall on State Street is not a completely unfamiliar sight to Madison residents. By eliminating vehicles on State Street, allowing pedestrians, bicyclists, etc., to fully um, take over those streets, akin to what you may see during Maxwell Street days or any time during the farmer's market when the street is blocked off. A State Street pedestrian mall has been a topic of discussion by city officials since at least the 1970s, as Smith reports. But for years, that was nearly impossible to study, as both delivery trucks and city buses still regularly drove down the roadway. But Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that the implementation of the Metro Transit's network redesign opened up the possibility of converting the area into a pedestrian-only zone. With the Metro network redesign, we no longer have buses running down these blocks of State Street. And so it opens up the possibility of a more formal closure. And obviously private cars are not allowed on State Street now. So it's really just a question of can we take that next step and limit deliveries? You know, how do we do that again in a way that, that preserves safety but also doesn't fund the businesses? The experiment would come in two stages. First, city staff would study how exactly a pedestrian mall should look. There are certain guidelines that the pedestrian mall would still need to abide by, such as maintaining a 20-foot-wide path without any obstructions to allow emergency vehicles access to the area. An actual closure of State Street wouldn't begin until at least the spring of next year, and Alder Govinder Arjun says that this would give city staff enough time to iron out the details. We wanted to do this the right way. We didn't want to rush into it. So this resolution is basically directing city staff members to do some research and just kind of like experiment with what is the right way of doing this. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that part of the study would be to figure out when the experiment should begin and when it should end. I think what we would want to make sure to do is to have a range of conditions. So we'll want to have some summer, we'll want to have some time when students are in town, and we may want to consider having some time when it's you know, winter weather versus warmer weather and to see the impact of those variables. After the experiment has concluded, city staff would create a report that looks at how the mall was used, the response from business owners, and what worked and what didn't work with the pedestrian mall. That report would then be sent to the Common Council alongside their own recommendations on whether or not the pedestrian mall should continue. The resolution will need to head to four different city committees. It is expected to go before the full council for a final vote on September 5th.
Also on the agenda for tomorrow's meeting is a resolution encouraging employers to honor Juneteenth as a paid holiday and the introduction of an ordinance requiring all future council meetings to end at midnight at the latest. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. In a special election last week, Republicans managed to keep control of a seat in the Assembly. That means the state GOP is just two seats away from a supermajority, and that has state Democrats worried. WORT's Charlie Bilosky has the full story. Last week, Republican Paul Milotic won the 24th Assembly election against his opponent, Bob Tatterson. The small business owner ran on a campaign of education, conservation efforts, and like his opponent, fully funding law enforcement. Malotic, who previously served in Ozaki County and the Grafton government, now represents a district that includes Germantown, Grafton, Menominee Falls, and Mequon. The assembly seat was previously held by Republican Dan Nodal, and the victory keeps Republicans two seats away from a supermajority. This has left Democratic lawmakers worried, as Wisconsin Republicans already have a supermajority in the Senate. A supermajority in both chambers would give Republicans the ability to override any vetoes from Democratic Governor Tony Evers. The chance of a veto override means Democrats need to keep a close watch on their membership. Anthony Chergoski is assistant professor of political science at UW-La Crosse. Um, so, yeah, you kind of do the math and... Uh, Right now, the Republicans would need to flip two of those seats that Democrats currently hold in order to get that veto-proof numbers. Republicans would need to flip two more seats in the Assembly for a veto-proof majority, but they also have the small possibility of a veto override even now. Republicans could flip a governor's veto if two or more Democratic representatives are absent from the floor. You need two-thirds uh, of the members present. So yeah, the, the veto override vote assumes that all of the Democrats are, are there. If the Republicans had the veto-proof majority in both chambers of the state legislature, they would be able to enact policy that is much more conservative than the policies that are possible right now. Despite these gains by Republicans, Democratic lawmakers are hopeful that voting trends in their favor. Last November, Dan Nodal defeated Bob Tatterson and won re-election by 22 percentage points. The election last Tuesday saw a much slimmer majority for Milotic. Many Republicans have also noticed the change and claim it's less votes than they expected to yield. But I think kind of the key part of the um, the special election is that yeah, it, it is part of that broader trend of Republicans losing some ground in what have traditionally been strongholds for their party. The Milwaukee suburbs have, for a long time, been core to the conservative movement in Wisconsin. And and those suburbs have been a huge source of votes for Republicans. But now the Republican Party is shifting more and more to a rural base. With Melodic's victory, Republicans have a 64 to 35 majority in the state assembly. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bielowski. Paula Niedenthal, a Madison resident from the near west side of town, has been housing an unlikely pet for the last year. In her backyard lives Rudy the pig. The legality of keeping Rudy as a pet has been called into question, and the city says he must be removed. WORT reporter Elizabeth Walsh spoke with Alder Tag Evers, whose district, re- district neighbors Rudy's district, earlier today. 
In the past year, if one was to wander along the southwest bike path, they were likely to encounter some unusual wildlife. Right off the path lived Rudy, a one-year-old miniature pig. Bikers and pedestrians enjoyed seeing Rudy, and he became a bit of a celebrity within the community. His fame skyrocketed in the past week, thanks largely to the reporting from the Wisconsin State Journal about his eviction. Pigs are not legal within city limits under current ordinance. But Rudy, who has been forced to relocate, may help press an update for that ordinance. Joining me on the line is Tag Evers, Madison Alder for District 13, the district that borders Rudy's home. Tag, thank you for joining me today. Uh, Well, glad to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about who Rudy is and how you first became aware of his situation? Rudy's um, lives on um, a street that is adjacent to District 13. Rudy is actually in District 5. But the backyard of the property where Rudy lives borders the Southwest bike path. And the Southwest commuter path is the boundary between District 5 and District 13. I walk my dog frequently along the bike path. And so I'm certainly aware of Rudy and the attention, um, as you mentioned, just in recent weeks um, that uh, about Rudy's fate. Um, so I, I got involved because I... I thought uh, this is something that we could do. It's a easy fix and worth working on. Yeah. What have you heard from your constituents about him? Well, most everybody uh, is supportive of Rudy, um, not only my constituents, but others throughout the city. They don't think it's necessary for us to evict a pig, um, particularly this pig who's a pet and a companion animal and um, is a loving member of his family. Um, there are there are a handful of people, very small number of people who are opposed to that, but overwhelmingly, the majority of folks want to keep Rudy. So under current city ordinance, um, it prohibits people to own pigs. Uh, why is that? Can you give me some of the historical context behind that? I don't actually know. I haven't researched the history of it, but I assume that the history probably dates back several decades, perhaps even going back to the first half of the 20th century, where there may have been areas around the city where people were raising pigs for food. And therefore it was, they were keeping, you know, barnyard or or farm animals uh, as livestock for food production. And, uh, you know, eventually slaughtering the animal for meat. For a number of reasons that was not deemed acceptable within a city, but this predates the time in which uh, miniature pigs were introduced in the United States, which was, in, as far as I can tell, in the 1980s. And since that time, these miniature pigs have been bred specifically for companionship for to, as pets. So while it's not particularly common, it's also not totally unheard of. I'm aware of a pig that was kept in Bay Creek some years back and stayed there, lived without any controversy for about five years. And the same would have happened with Rudy, except someone complained. And when public health found out about it, this old ordinance was on the books, which bans all pigs from the city, kicked into action. And as a result, uh, Rudy has been, you know, the owners have been 
threatened with a citation and have been told that they need to remove Rudy. So you are looking to amend the ordinance with different rules for miniature pigs than for regular hogs or swine. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that would mean to amend it and what your timeline looks like? Well, I'm hoping to introduce this amendment, even if it's by what's called title only, which means we don't have the specific ordinance drafted yet, uh, and to introduce this at next Tuesday's meeting. Then uh, it would be referred to a meeting of the Public Board of Health, which is the committee that deals with health issues within the city. It's, I believe, a joint committee with representatives of the county and the city. But um, the Board of Health committee would then look at the proposed ordinance change, and then it would come back to Common Council, presumably in September. And we would, uh, in my mind, create an exception to the ordinance that bans pigs, making an exception for uh, miniature pigs bred specifically for companionship and to be kept as pets, with some specificity about how they are to be kept in terms of being penned in or fenced in or walked on a leash and that, um, you know, other rules regarding perhaps vaccines and things like that. So Madisonians can also have a certain number of other barnyard animals, and those ordinances have been continually updated. For example, you can now have up to eight backyard chickens. Until recently, the limit was four chickens. Alders have updated the chicken ordinance earlier this spring. Uh, What does this tell us about how we're changing how we think about keeping animals in the city? Is this an ongoing discussion? Well, it's interesting. You can keep chickens, but you can't keep a rooster. So what, you have to think what what works in a city and what doesn't. You don't want animals that will create, you know, wake everybody up at 4.30 a.m. And that's why we wouldn't want to, you know, somebody wants to have a pet donkey because donkeys have a tendency to bray and make loud noises early in the morning. We wouldn't allow a, a pet donkey. But if, you know, there is this phenomenon of the miniature pig, and it seems rather harmless, to create an accommodation in the ordinance for this and, and not, you know, not be uh, so strict that we couldn't allow something like this. Um, you know, life is short and life is complicated and life is messy. And this this pig, Rudy, brings a lot of joy to a lot of people. And, and it, it doesn't seem reasonable to, to me that we would disallow that. Do you have any other examples of other sorts of animals that you think would never be allowed in the city? You know, I'm to me, that's not, it's not something that I'm really focusing on. I think that we would have to handle that one at a time. There are already restrictions where, you know, you can't keep alligators and large snakes and things like that. I mean, there are, we're not looking to go and review all the ordinances regarding animals. We're looking to make a small, what I see to be an easy change to the current ordinance to allow Rudy to stay where Rudy lives now with his family. And, you know, if it means that there are a small number of pet pigs then in in our city, I think we can handle it. We just need to make sure that there are some parameters around that. I would caution people to think, oh, I'm going to go out and get a pig. If you would speak with the owners of Rudy, they say, you know, it's, it's a commitment. It's like getting any pet. You know, there are a lot of people during the pandemic went out and adopted dogs and cats and then found out that, hey, it's a real commitment to be a pet owner. And um, so a lot of of dogs and cats got returned 
needed to be rehomed. And, you know, we certainly wouldn't want that with uh, a miniature pig. So people need to be careful. So let's not overcomplicate this. Let's, let's make this provision and move on with the more important things that we need to be doing in our city. We've seen from a lot of recent reporting, specifically from the Wisconsin State Journal, that there has been a lot of community support from this. Are you able to give me any specific examples or messages you've received from constituents in support of keeping Rudy? I mean, I'm not keeping uh, tabs on numbers or anything like that. There, There is, I think, generally speaking, overwhelming support for keeping Rudy. People, particularly who uh, walk along the bike path or bicycle bike along the bike path, uh, who have met Rudy, thinks it's quite sad that Rudy would be forced to leave. So, um, it, you know, generally the, the community support is there. And again, this is a minor fix that I think we can take care of. Yeah, and the alder for the district, Regina Bidiver, the district five alder, happens to be on vacation, but she and I are in touch. And we're working with city staff and staff in the zoning department and public health and the city attorney's office so that we can come up with a, a ordinance change that's reasonable and makes sense and is crafted intelligently for this specific circumstance. And, and, and then Rudy can stay. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share on this subject? No, not really. I mean, some people might think that uh, this is, there are a lot more important things for alders to be doing, and I would agree. But like I said before, Rudy brings a lot of joy to a lot of people. And and, uh, for that reason alone, I think that if it's not ridiculous and unreasonable, which I don't think it is, we ought to be able to make this change. So that's why I'm moving forward with this. I've been speaking with District 13 Alder Tag Evers about city ordinances which prohibit the ownership of livestock within city limits and what it means for beloved community member Rudy the Pig. Thank you for speaking with me today, Tag. Thank you, Elizabeth. Have a great day. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan to take a look at what's happening this week in city and county government. This week, the city of Madison discusses the future of the Lake Monona waterfront, and Dane County takes a plethora of zoning challenges. It's time again to talk local government, and we're here with Brenda Conkle to, to dive into it. We'll start first, as usual, with Dane County, and in progress, started at 5.30, is the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. So they have a hybrid meeting. Um, do we know what this means about? Or I mean, actually, it's a joint meeting. Um, they're actually attending the Health and Human Needs Committee, and they are um, having a public hearing on the opioid settlement money. It's over $15 million that'll be coming to our community in various segments. And so they're talking about how should that money be spent and, you know, what's the best use of that large amount of money. It's going to be one-time money, so it's something that may not be sustainable in the future, but what would be the best way to spend it? Well, while we're on the subject of the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, they do have a meeting uh, all on their own, maybe, yeah, all on their own at 5.30 tomorrow. They'll be talking about a lot of stuff, including buying some vehicles and anything else of note. So they're going to be talking about the allocation of criminal justice reform initiatives funding. Um, so looking at you know where where their their spending priority should be, um, and then they'll also be looking at um, 
a freeway service team for the Wisconsin Department of Transportation. They're going to ha- be having a contract with them. So, um, and they're going to, yeah, they have those sheriff's vehicles that they'll be purchasing. Let's go now to Wednesday. The Park Commission is meeting at Goodland County Park over there on Wabisa Avenue. And um, are they buying more land? Uh, sometimes they like to buy land. We, it seems like that happens all the time. But what are they up to, the Parks Commission? Yeah, actually, they don't have any land purchases, which is highly unusual. Um, they do have some bike trails that they're going to be um, providing an easement for. And then they are also going to be looking at buying accessible fishing pier um, for the uh, Dane County Parks. Um, and then they are getting a presentation from the city of Fitchburg about the Cyan and McCoy intersection reconstruction project. And then they'll be getting a presentation also on the history of Goodland County Park. And do you know who Goodland was? Oh, I do not. Do you? He was the governor of Wisconsin in, uh, oh. during World War II. So just so you know, that's who the guy was. Yeah. Well, thank you. Now I have learned something for today. I'm done. <laughs> and on Friday, um, Dane County's Personnel and Finance Committee's Equity, Recruitment, and Retention Subcommittee is having a hybrid meeting. And, uh, yeah, so tell us more about that, Brenda. Um, So they'll be talking about some of the ideas that they've had and what they want to prioritize. They'll also be getting a presentation about the Dane County Highway Department's internship program and then a staff update about the um, Dane County Workplace Climate Assessment. So City of Madison has been doing that climate survey, and it sounds like the county is going to do something similar. Moving on to the city of Madison, happening right now is the Plan Commission, formerly the Planning Commission. They shortened things up a while back, and I still haven't gotten used to it. But at 530, uh, they started meeting virtually. Anything of uh, consequence there? They just have some sort of standard projects that they're looking at. There is um, one at 102 Dempsey Road, 5132 Vogus Road, 526 Penny Street, and 18 to 30 North Carroll Street. That's actually just approving a certified survey map, which combines all the properties together. And then there are some um, ordinances on there that they'll be looking at as well. One is going to be an exception to the height and story minimum requirements. Another ordinance is going to look at the transit-oriented development requirements and exclude uh, city and county-owned parks from that requirement. And then they are also going to be looking at reducing the minimum setback requirements um, for some of the ordinances. Boring stuff, maybe, but to some people, it's really important. <laughs> That's why we mention it. And uh, something that is happening, uh, it just got started a few minutes ago, that is a little bit more exciting is uh, uh, it's a notice of a possible quorum of the Lake Monona Waterfront Ad Hoc Committee. So they'll be discussing kind of a, a huge project that's just starting to take shape. Yep. The designers will be presenting their proposed revisions um, to the master plan for that. Um, and I think they're going to allow the community to also give some additional feedback. And Tuesday, 1 p.m., we have the Building Code, Fire Code, Conveyance Code, and Licensing Board, a virtual meeting. We don't talk about them very often. I guess I'm just bringing it up because someone wants to have a variance so they don't have, a put, have to put a fence around an in-ground pool. Right. These are the kinds of exciting things that committee gets to deal with. Usually it's one off items where, you know, they, they could you can ask for a variance and sometimes they will grant them. So, yeah, they have that as well as um, limiting exterior walls for the fire separation distance. Instead of it being 10 foot, it's gonna, uh, instead of being 15 foot, they want it to be 10 foot. Um, and I actually went in front of this committee one time so that the railings on my porch should be six inches shorter than what was required. 
Were you successful? We were successful, yes. <laughs> okay. And nothing but nobody has fallen off the railing since. No, nobody has fallen. <laughs> well, the in-ground pool thing, I don't know. Like, what about wildlife just wandering in? That's what I worry yeah, about. Well, they'll have to deal with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess they will. Anywho, well, Tuesday, the Common Council uh, Executive Committee and the full Common Council uh, get going at 4.30, followed by the full body meeting at 6.30. Sure. The CEEC will be talking about their budget request for the Common Council Office, as well as the upcoming council meeting dates for 2024. Um, and then they are looking at uh, all those needs to notify uh, the clerk's office, as well as the council office when they're going to be absent from the city for more than five days. And they're changing how that has to be done. Um, and then the full council will be discussing um, at, in the beginning of the meeting, they'll be getting, having their annual discussion about their official code and ethical conduct for the alders. And then they have a couple developments, not much. Um, and then they are going to be looking at updating uh, subdivision regulations. Um, this could be slightly controversial. Some of the developers are opposing it. Um, and then they have um, three different TIF districts that they're looking at, I believe creating um, so they're approving the project plan and boundary and use of the half mile rule for um, TIF 53, which is East Wilson Street, TIF 54, which is Pennsylvania Avenue, and then TIF 52, which is East Washington Stoughton Road. And then beyond that, they will be going back to, they had not gotten to everything at the end of the last meeting, and they put off a bunch of things to this meeting. And so they will be talking about encouraging um, private companies to uh, honor Juneteenth as a paid holiday. Um, and that was a little bit controversial. They'll also be adopting the West Area plan. And so there may be some folks that are interested in that as well. Well, our time is short, Brenda. So let's just go over a few more interesting items before we wrap things up for the week. We have the Vending Oversight Committee meeting virtually on Wednesday at 5 p.m. And I kind of another big project or experiment in the works there too, right? <laughs> yes, they're going to be talking about the uh, closure of the 400 to 600 block of State Street. Um, and so they're going to be talking about what how that might impact, I'm, I'm guessing, vending. It's also on a couple other agendas this week as well. So if you're interested in that particular issue, I think it's on the Transportation Committee and maybe another one. Um, and then the Vending Oversight Committee will also be talking about the food cart reviews, which is everybody's favorite time of year. Yes, very important review happening for those food cart owners, and they take it very seriously. For more meetings and agendas, and just to find out what's happening here in Madison and Dane County in terms of city business and county business, head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Thanks, Dylan. This Thursday is the anniversary of the Negro Fort Massacre in Florida in 1816. 330 women, men, and children were killed by the U.S. military. They were mostly formerly enslaved people who had found refuge in the fort. A few of the dead were also Seminole and other indigenous allies. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For 
for the union men and women standing up and standing strong. This Thursday, July 27th, is the anniversary of the Negro Fort Massacre in 1816. The fort on the Apalachicola River in Florida was firebombed by the U.S. Army. A hot shot from the gunship hit the fort's gunpowder magazine. The resulting explosion killed 200 black men, women, and children in the fort. The rest were fatally wounded out of the total of 330 residents. The tragedy marked the beginning of the Seminole Wars and the eventual U.S. conquest of Florida. Florida was a Spanish colony, but it was also contested territory. The fighting in the southeast defined manifest destiny, the self-declared right of the United States, to expand from coast to coast, no matter who was in the way, be they Native Americans or European colonists. This included Spanish colonies to add additional slave states. Indian removal and slavery were combined with manifest destiny in the War of 1812, as British agents used disaffected Native nations and formerly enslaved people to form a southern front against the United States. Free African and Native settlements were in constant conflict with the slave-raiding, land-grabbing white settlers of Georgia. After their defeat in battle, the Red Stick Creeks fled into Florida, joining existing Seminole and African settlements. In the War of 1812, the British used Florida as their operating base, creating a southern front against the U.S. military. British agents promised natives and fugitive blacks land, freedom, and protection if they fought on the British side. The Seminoles, Mikasakis, Red Stick Creeks, and the blacks established closer ties through these operations and realized their common interest to work jointly to fend off white settlers. In 1814, the British ordered the Red Stick Creeks to construct a fort on the Apalachicola River. The Brits retreated from their position in Pensacola after Andrew Jackson's invasion. They were joined by their native allies and several hundred slaves belonging to residents of that town. They furnished the fort with artillery and munitions. The British had 300 soldiers there and an immediate flow of refugees, Seminole, and runaway slaves from southern states also sought protection. The force's purpose was to assemble an army from these people to attack white settlers along the Georgia-Alabama border. By December 1814, 900 native warriors and 450 armed Africans had gathered at the fort. The former slaves were offered free land in the British colonies or to fight under the British military. By the early summer of 1815, the British commander left for England with a few Red Creek chiefs to advocate protection for them against the Americans. The remaining warriors abandoned the fort, leaving it to the formerly enslaved. Up to 400 additional runaways came to the fort for protection. The fort walls had eight cannons and a five and a half inch howitzer and a large catch of weapons, including rifles and vast amounts of cannon and rifle powder. The fort had grown from a strategically defensive base to a flourishing free black community around the banks of the Apalachicola. Fields were cultivated 50 miles upriver. Runaway slaves came in daily. There were about 1,000 Africans in the fields and around 300 black men, women, and children in the fort along with 20 Choctaw and a few Seminoles. The fort became a growing threat to slavery itself, so it had to be eliminated. On March 15, 1816, the Secretary of War ordered Jackson to communicate with the Spanish governor to put an end to an evil of so serious a nature, or the U.S. government would do it for him. On April 23, Jackson transmitted the demand. On April 8th, two weeks before Jackson wrote the Spanish governor, he ordered General Gaines to destroy the Negro fort, regardless of its location on Spanish territory. On July 17th, an advance party marched to the fort and was met by Creeks hired by Jackson to capture the fort's slaves. On the 23rd, the Creeks demanded that the blacks surrender, but they responded defiantly. 
the African commander, Garcon, said he would sink any American vessel that should attempt to pass it, and he would blow up the fort if he could not defend it. On July 27th, the gunboats came within range and fired on the fort. The first hot shot landed on the fort's gunpowder magazine, setting off a horrible explosion, instantly killing 270 black men, women, and children in the fort. The rest were mortally wounded, totaling 330 residents. Garcon and the Choctaw chief somehow survived and were immediately executed by the Creeks. Six blacks were captured and returned to their speculated masters. The thousand or so Africans in the field scattered to safety to other free black settlements or joined the Seminoles. The attack led to the first Seminole War, but that is a story for another day. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. In August 2018, the Madison area experienced the massive flash floods after over 12 inches of rain fell within less than an hour. Five years later, large swaths of Wisconsin are not under a flash flood, but the exact opposite, a flash drought. What are flash droughts? On today's 8 o'clock buzz, Brian Standing spoke with Jason Otkin, an associate scientist at the UW-Madison Cooperative Institute for Meteorological Satellite Studies, to learn more. What makes a drought a flash drought, and why have we not heard of this term before? Okay, so um, flash droughts are droughts that develop very quickly um, over the course of a few weeks to a couple months. Most people tend to think of drought as something that should take many months, you know, or maybe even years to reach its full intensity. Uh, But as we saw across Wisconsin this spring and, and early summer, is that drought conditions can actually develop very quickly when you get very hot and very dry weather conditions that remain stuck over a region, you know, for a few weeks, you know, to maybe a couple months. And um, in those situations, when you get that combination of really hot temperatures and below normal rainfall, you then get very rapid drying at the land surface, and then you get the onset of a flash drought conditions. To answer your question about why haven't we been talking about this in the past is, uh, mostly because this is a relatively new terminology uh, that, that we're using. Um, it was first coined by, by a, 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 he's currently the director at the National Drought Mitigation Center, I'm a guy named uh, Mark Svoboda. Um, he coined that term about 20 years ago. And what really got it on people's uh, radar was actually 2012, uh, when we had just a tremendously destructive uh, flash drought across the Midwest. And then since then, uh, that term gets used a lot more because, you know, we've been having a lot of flash droughts. And are we in a flash drought now? Is that what we're currently experiencing? Yeah, I would. So um, so the flash drought terminology refers to like the intensification phase. You know, when you go from being free of drought conditions to when you fall into uh, severe or extreme drought conditions. So like the flash drought part of it was more in like the June and the first part of July uh, time frame, and now we're kind of in like this long-term drought pattern where, in the last few weeks here, we've seen some improvements, you know, with, with the with the very beneficial rain we've had across Dane County. But the question is, you know, you know will that last, or or are we going to fall back into, you know, the dry and hot weather? And if that if that continues, then you know we're going to see the drought conditions continue as well. And and who are the uh, people most impacted by droughts? I'm farmers, obviously, but wh- who else uh, is impacted? Yeah, so it really kind of depends upon the type of drought uh, you're talking about. You know, here in Wisconsin, we you know we, we always pay a lot of attention to agricultural drought. You know, because you know farmers take a big hit whenever we get a drought like this. But like another kind of drought that's been gaining more attention in recent years um, is actually snow drought. You know, so that's going to be a much bigger impact for northern Wisconsin, which is going to be much more dependent upon 
winter tourism. And if they get a shortage of, of snowfall, that leads to snow drought, and then that will also, you know, impact that part of the state. Um, if we actually, if we actually had a, you know, a truly multi-year kind of drought, which we haven't had in decades, uh, that will then have a much bigger impact on hydrology too. So, you know, but like I said, we really haven't seen that in Wisconsin for a long time. In the circumstances we're under right now, where we're under an extreme drought, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor, even with uh, some of the recent rains, what are some of the impacts we're seeing so far? So the the impacts that we were seeing um, prior to the rainfall um, a few weeks ago was that the crops were in terrible shape. I, I took a drive outside of Madison a, a few weeks ago. This is right before the rain started, and and it was really astonishing to see just how how poor the crop conditions were. You know, all the all the uh, you know the corn and the soybeans were really short. You know, the corn leaves were very tightly curled. You know, indicating a, a very high level of stress. I'm going to assume that conditions have improved since then, you know, because of the, you know, the right, uh, the nice rainfall that we've had, you know, it's been very beneficial rainfall. It's been at a very good time of the year to get this kind of rain because we're in the midst of, of a pollination, you know, tasseling and silking for, for corn. And that's a very critical time of the year to, you know, to get good yields. Uh, so this rainfall was, was perfect timing for that. That was 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing talking with Associate Professor at UW-Madison, Jason Otkin. That was only a portion of their full conversation, which can be heard in full online at wortfm.org. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. First is Oppenheimer, the long-awaited Christopher Nolan movie on the, f- on, on the father of the atomic bomb. Then it's They Clone Tyrone, an over-the-top sci-fi conspiracy satire. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button... We destroy the world. Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. That was clear from the trailer for Oppenheimer, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. I've been looking forward to this movie for months. I was not disappointed. This is one of the best movies of the year. Nolan has done an amazing job of giving us the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atom bomb. The movie is based on the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Martin Sherwin and Kaya Bird. Thanks to the movie, American Prometheus is back on the bestseller list. The film's central piece is the politically motivated security clearance hearings for Oppenheimer in 1954. Oppenheimer is intensely played by Irish actor Killian Murphy. The scene is played out over the course of the three-hour movie, sometimes in high contrast black and white. The film takes us back to his days as a young student in the 1920s, troubled by apocalyptic visions. He studied in Germany and learned about quantum physics. He also read widely, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, explored European culture, like Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring and Picasso's paintings. In the 30s, he became a popular professor in Berkeley and was stimulated by brilliant colleagues, especially Ernest Lawrence, Josh Harnett, a physicist who invents a particle accelerator and played a key role in the Manhattan Project. He recommended Oppenheimer for the project, which leads to his meeting with its military head, Leslie Groves, a fine Matt Damon, who makes Oppenheimer head of the Los Almos lab, despite his support for left causes like unions for professors and supporting the Republic government against the fascists during the Spanish Civil War, and some of his associations, including former Communist Party CP members like his brother, Frank Dylan Arnold, and spouse Kitty, a great Emily Blunt. The film shows Oppenheimer's personal philandering, especially with another CP fireband, Gene Tatlock, 
Florence Pugh. The movie shows the dramatic initial test of the atom bomb, Trinity, in New Mexico. This made Oppenheimer think of the famous phrase by Vishnu in the Hindu scripture, Bhavad Gita. Now I am death, the destroyer of worlds. But the movie doesn't show the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which killed perhaps 200,000 people. The film illustrates Oppenheimer's efforts to prevent the further expansion of nuclear weapons through international controls. He tried to convince Truman to support his position. Truman said as a dejected Oppenheimer left the room, don't let that crybaby scientist come back. He opposed the hydrogen bomb, which likely led to the hearings orchestrated by Louis Strauss, a marvelous, almost unrecognizable Robert Downey Jr. as chair of the Atomic Energy Commission, AEC. The movie flips back and forth between the scene of Oppenheimer at his hearings and Strauss at his nomination hearing for a cabinet position. Sadly, the people who lived near the New Mexico blast are forgotten in this film, but they are still fighting for restitution through the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Association and groups like the Union of Concerned Scientists. Also forgotten are the Navajo who mined the uranium, the tailings of which are still visible along tribal roads. A gripping, dramatic film. I highly recommend it. See it on the biggest screen you can find. Now for something on a layer note, from science to science fiction. You keep your pimp hand raised and be willing to protect the ones you love by any means necessary. That was Glip from the trailer for They Cloned Tyrone, co-written and directed by Joel Taylor. Tony Rettenmayer co-wrote the screenplay. Taylor is a successful scriptwriter, but this is his first time directing a movie. This is a sci-fi conspiracy satire mystery. Veteran African-American reviewer Timothy Cogswell called it a silly satire of early 70s black exploitation flicks like Superfly or Willie Dynamite with what writers Tyler and Rettenmeyer call a dash of Scooby-Doo. This seems like a fair comparison if you add a touch of sorry to bother you. The film has a good, largely African-American cast. The main characters are a pimp, Slick, Jamie Foxx, a drug dealer named Fontaine, John Boyega, and a prostitute named Yo-Yo, Teo New Paris. There's a fun bit part for Kiefer Sutherland. They are stuck in a rough neighborhood. They stumble onto a vast underground, literally, conspiracy to keep their neighborhood down. The film is violent, profane, with a dose of humor and originality, but just takes things too far. Sadly, I can't recommend this movie, but I look forward to Jewel Taylor's next project. It just started playing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters were Charlie Bielowski and Elizabeth Walsh. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggiehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.